0: Welcome to the Let's Talk podcast from the University of Edinburgh, where we talk about the joys and challenges of life at university, focusing especially on our mental health. I'm Harriet Harris, the university chaplain, and today I'm joined by staff member Umar Malik and PhD student Estefar Zaid for a special episode made in Islamophobia Awareness Month. Estefar and Umar talk about their experiences of growing up as Muslims in the UK and coming to normalise behaviour towards themselves and their friends as coping mechanisms when they are picked out for comment or for violent words or actions, and of bracing themselves for reprisal attacks after terrorist incidents have taken place around the world, which may or may not have had Islamicist agitators behind them. They encourage people to report Islamophobic behaviour whilst being very honest about people's reasons for not reporting. They want to make victims of Islamophobia fully aware that it is a hate crime and that it takes a very real personal toll on people's lives. Estifar highlights the experience of hijabi-wearing women who, because they are so visible, are often targeted. Umar works with MEND, Muslim Engagement and Development, and would like to see more examples of constructive relations between Muslim communities and journalists, to correct a scaremongering tendency in the media. With this podcast, we'd also like to let uh, listeners know about the university's courses made available in FutureLearn on the Sharia and Islamic law and on Christian-Muslim relations in the West, and also about the work of university members in adding Islamic art to Wikipedia. Please see the podcast website for more details. Umar and Esty, thanks ever so much for joining me this afternoon. Could you introduce yourself, Umar? Would you like to introduce yourself first, Umar?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. Uh, My name is uh, Umar Malik. I um, recently joined the university. Uh, I say recently, it was in July. It seems like a long time ago now, um, everything that's happening. Um, I work within uh, HR operations, and I'm part of uh, a team that's just uh, a newly launched team. It's in line with the, the new HR system, which is launched across the university. Uh, And outside of university, I've kind of, over a number of years I've been involved with different kind of community and charity projects, you know, around Edinburgh and kind of across Scotland. At present, I am the chair of the Edinburgh Working Group for MEND, uh, which is an organisation which uh, tackles uh, Islamophobia, amongst other things.
0: That's fantastic, and It's going to be so interesting to hear more about that. Thank you. And Esty, could you introduce yourself? Hi. Um,
2: I'm Estifa. I am a second year PhD student um, in particle physics at the University of Edinburgh. I did my undergrad masters here as well, so I've been here for just over six years. And I've been um, quite involved with the chaplaincy over the years in various initiatives. Um, I was president of the Islamic Society and I've been working with setting up steps Um, which is a Syrian refugee tutoring program um, that was done at the chaplaincy um, prior to COVID and going
0: online. And it's gone online brilliantly, hasn't it, Estefers? It's um, worked out really nicely that that the Syrian teenagers can still meet with their student tutors online, which is just fantastic. So it's really great that the two of you have been able to come together and have a conversation, particularly at this month, because it's Islamophobia Awareness Month. And could I ask each of you what you would like to make listeners most aware of in this month? Estifa, would you like to go first? I
2: think I'd probably approach this on two fronts. Mm-hmm. I think firstly, I'd like to make victims of Islamophobia aware of their options and what they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, to really put an emphasis on the fact that it is important, and within the Scottish government remit, it is also, in at certain times, considered a hate crime. And so I think that's really important. And then for non-Muslims and other people, I think just to raise awareness of the real human impact that it can have outside of policy and um, and just kind of the political. Rhetoric that we kind of have in the media is just to kind of really hone in on um, the personal um, and human impact that it can have on on our lives.
0: Thanks so much for for flagging both of those things up. They're, they're absolutely crucial. So for people to know if they've been subject of a verbal or physical any any form of, of aggression or microaggressions or macro. Um, that re- this really is a hate crime that reporting I don't know how you feel about reporting. Is there anything that Isaac you want to say about the reporting of these crimes?
1: I, I think for me personally, um, I, I mean I've suffered Islamophobia in the past. Um, I still think i've been, I've been very fortunate um, compared to other people I know in terms of the Islamophobia I've been subjected to. I think it is it's quite' it's, um, far less than people I know. Um, uh-huh. and I think it's those incidents, though, do stand out because obviously they are so, you know, shocking and uh, and hurtful. Um, uh-huh. But I have I have never reported um, an uh-huh. Islamophobic incident, and it's something I regret, and uh-huh. it's something that uh, is ironic because I mean the organisation I'm involved in. But for me personally, what's really changed my um, approach to this, in particular with reporting, I think was the Christchurch attack last year yeah um, that really for me changed my mindset and I you know it, it it's a case of hoping you know, this is where Islamophobia this is where it ends if we don't do anything about it so people who are subject to Islamophobia you know we need to take that step and you know it does take you know a degree of courage but we do need to speak out we do need to report what's happening uh you know to to stop to stop this and that's the only way you know we, we can tackle it by you know, making sure we know we're speaking out and we are reporting this.
0: Yeah. So, what would you say to somebody who perhaps reported to Mend or, or perhaps a friend came to to you, umar, or, or to estefa What would you say to them to encourage them to report? Do you want to speak to that first, umar and then we'll go to estefa
1: Yeah. Mend have set up the Islamophobia Response Unit to the IRU. It's a free and confidential advice service for those affected by Islamophobic discrimination and Islamophobic hate crime and you can go onto the MEND website men.org.uk and there's an online form you can fill in uh, or you can email them or, or give them a call and what they do is not only is it data monitoring on Islamophobia across the country but they also provide legal support advice and referral services so uh-huh. they can open up uh, a network of of support for someone, you know, who is a victim of Islamophobia. Obviously, if you are in, you know, if if you're a victim of anti uh, muslim prejudice or a hate crime and are still in danger, then, you know, I would you know, you must call 999, um. as in any emergency situation. But, you know, you can also call 111 if it's not as uh, pressing at, at, at that moment in time. Uh, but I think yeah. the benefit of going through the IRU is they will, you know, support you and guide you. through the different mechanisms that you can use to you know to to report uh, the incident that you've suffered
0: yeah yeah and then as you say you mentioned the the kind of network of support because that's so important isn't it you know people can feel very alone reporting something and actually feel it feel more unsafe in the reporting of it so having the network around i think can make all the difference
1: yeah absolutely i i find i mean for, for my my own personal experience of, of not reporting was not so much about, you know, it, it wasn't out of fear or intimidation. I think there was, there's part apathy there, as mm-hmm. in, well, you know, I'll report this, but nothing's, you know, what's going to happen? You know, they're not going to catch the person. Nothing's, it's not going to change anything. And I think yeah. part, uh, maybe laziness on my part, I thought, you know, what I can do without this. There was one time I got, as um, someone called me, a paki on the train. And mm-hmm. although I would categorize that as, you know uh, racism as opposed to islamophobia although the, you know there's the, a another discussion that islamophobia is a type of racism mm. uh, but i suppose racism directed to my ethnicity as opposed to my religious background mm. and at the time i had exams on at uni and the thought crossed my mind that i should report this but i thought you know what I, it, it's something i could do without at this moment in time
0: yeah. and i made
1: a conscious decision at that time not to report it and i remember just a few weeks later I was speaking to a police, uh, police officer just at a, at, a, at an event and um, I mentioned this to them and, and they said you know you should have reported it. we would have taken it very seriously you know we would have got in touch with the you know we make sure we get the CCTV footage you know we would have there's something that we deal you know we treat seriously we do not take lightly um, um, so that's so when in, in hindsight it's something I wish I had done.
0: Yeah, that's really it's so helpful to hear that reflection and so relatable also to hear that experience of, well, I didn't trust that it would really change anything. And I had so much on anyway. And I didn't, you know, in a sense, I couldn't couldn't be bothered in a sense because I wasn't sure it would really be taken up and I had a lot to do. But for you to receive the assurance later on that it would have been taken seriously and it would have felt worthwhile. Is something that you're reflecting on now and and can speak about now, and that's really helpful to hear it. Estefan, what would you say to somebody, and and you know, as a woman, what would you say if uh, if another Muslim woman came to you, and and maybe you know, maybe something that that happens, you know, a fair a fair amount. What would you say if somebody come to you, if, if and when people come to you and say, you know, this is this has just happened on the train or walking across the meadows or in a class. Um. So I think
2: the one thing to note with um, a lot of Muslims, especially in the UK, is that um, because pretty much this has probably happened to every Muslim um, in this country, we've really normalized that kind of behavior towards ourselves. So we tend to not see things as a big deal when they really are because we've either experienced it so much that we've normalized it, or it's a coping mechanism um, to be able to just get up and move forward. If you say, oh, it's not a big deal, it's fine. Um, And I think that it's really important to strike a balance between being able to rationalize somebody else's behavior and your experience, but also to make sure that these things are reported, if not for our sake, but simply just to be able to say, well, this is the evidence. This is the amount of um, reports that have gone to the police over time um, of Islamophobic attacks. And I remember working with um, the police in Edinburgh over a campaign to do this just simply because they didn't have the statistics. They were hearing of a lot of Islamophobic attacks, um, but nobody was coming up to report them. So they were finding it very hard um, to figure out Um, where they were coming from, and also to have the statistics to do something about it in the long term. Um, So it's really like a a bigger picture issue, as well as it being um, specific to the person who's going through it. And it can be really cathartic and important to have somebody in a position of power to validate your experience and to say, actually, this is really serious,
0: and we're going to follow up on it. Can I ask what, um, if any, effects you've noticed in the uk since the brexit vote have you noticed any change in levels of islamophobia or different attitudes around yourself or fellow muslims
2: i think we're quite lucky in in certain respects in, in scotland because the experiences here seem to be a lot better than um, if you were to take certain cities in England, I'm from Birmingham. Um, so in comparison to Birmingham, my experiences here are a lot better. But after the Brexit vote, it was there was a peak um, in the number of Islamophobic attacks, and it the vote the result almost emboldened a lot of people to be able to say and do things they weren't able to do before, um, and that really showed on social media. It showed on the streets. Um, and there were Facebook posts going around um, about point scores for how many Muslims you can attack. And so there was really a a sense of fear and um, that was going around the Muslim community. And I think it shows a lot more for women, firstly, because they're more visible, if you're a hijabi woman, um, as a Muslim. And also because people who tend to do this, will target the most vulnerable people, and um, women are definitely a part of that demographic and where they won't be able to defend themselves as well. Uh And so it really makes a difference to -to day-to-day lives and the decision that a lot of Muslim women have to take on whether they go out or go on certain streets or not, and that was definitely felt um, post-Brexit.
0: Yes, that's so interesting to hear. And I, I remember, Esther, because you were, you know, you were around the chapter a lot, um, always, you know, have been uh, during the, your multiple activities as a student here. But I think I'm, I'm, am I right in remembering, Esther, that you were a scout leader around that time, and that you were aware of young people, you know, and age people, so perhaps early teens or late sort of tween, tween kind of age, feeling vulnerable after the Brexit vote?
2: Um, yeah, I was. I was mm. working with the scouts, um, mm. and my kids were around the age from like eleven to fifteen. Yeah, um, and that's definitely yeah again a, a demographic of within the Muslim community that's more vulnerable again. So
0: you were aware of what was happening either within schools or or in the in the kind of life outside of school, but for that age group.
2: Yeah, I think there was. Well, firstly, I think scouts is a really good community to be able for kids to really share their concerns. And so they echoed a lot of the concerns within the Muslim community in general of what's going to happen, but also just a a fear of the kind of rhetoric that was being used after the Brexit vote. But I think it's not just the the Brexit vote. I remember this happening after 9-11. I was quite young, but Uh um, it was still memorable enough. um, After the... Lee Rigby attack in London um, mm-hmm. there was a massive spike and so this t- kind of tends to happen where the Muslim community tends to be held responsible um for events and the media kind of doesn't help with that either and we definitely feel the difference on a personal level after those kind of events.
0: Yeah yeah that, that and that's interesting and something I wanted to turn to within this conversation. So perhaps Umar, if I come come to you now to to speak about, you know, when there's there's been an incident reported in the news of some sort of Islamicist action, terrorist attack, whether in, in the UK or elsewhere in the world, could you say something about the effect it has upon yourself what men do, how do men kind of mobilise a little bit differently in order to to be there in support of people because aware of effects it's going to be having on people. Could you speak a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, it's um, certainly, I mean, whenever certain events or incidents happen, uh, which are reported in the news, it's my instant reaction. I know a lot of speaking of the Muslims, they, they have the same reaction. Your first reaction is, please, please, I hope it's not a Muslim because we just know that if there is, you know, the, this is going to impact our daily lives when we go out, it's going to increase the chances of someone saying something to us, um, you know, people getting attacked and, you know, you know right. sort, of, sort of reprisal attacks. Um, and it, which, it, which is it's, it's a horrible initial feeling to have, because whenever these attacks or whatever they are happening, you know, there usually are, they're horrible attacks it involves a loss of life and you know your first reaction should be about the victims but it's got to that stage where the way it's reported in the media there's you know a certain scaremongering that happens um certain the certain parts of reporting will kind of increase the muslimness of of the attacker if that you know if that makes sense yeah um which is kind of you know, the the undertone there is that oh well because he's a muslim he did this you know they, they'll they find that there's a copy of the quran always nearby the attacker they'll find that somewhere or uh-huh. they'll ex- the, the media will explicitly mention uh, that he was shouting Allah akbar which is you know means god is the god is the greatest uh, which muslims you know every muslim will recite in their prayers uh-huh. but by explicitly mentioning that and there's even incidents, I think, in recently, some of the mm. attacks that happened in France, one which was uh, actually initially t- reported as a, you know, a so-called Muslim terrorist attack. It actually turned out to be two members of the Greek Orthodox community. But when that was initially reported, there, w- there was an attacker allegedly shouting Allahu Akbar. Um, but mm. when they found out that it wasn't Muslim, it was very, it very quickly went away. That's where there was no,
0: yes.
1: um, you know, the. It, we, the correction, so to speak, didn't get the same amount of uh, media airtime.
0: No, not As the initial
1: breaking news, yeah, um, which I think you know if, if it didn't fit a certain narrative. Uh. In terms of what mend does, I mean, usually what will happen is the mend and other communities, other you know Muslim organisations, uh, you'll often see on social media a condemnation, um, which again in itself is I think unfortunate because as Muslims, we feel we have to condemn such uh, attacks where, you know, you get lunatics and nutcases um, and criminals in all um, communities. Uh-huh. Um, now, just because someone happens to be a Muslim or calls themselves a Muslim and has carried out a certain crime, that doesn't mean that all Muslims hold those views or, you know, condone that, but uh-huh. there's an extra spotlight um, put on the Muslim community in that you know well you know get your house in order you know why are you guys doing this you should you know do you do you support this you know, we feel that we have to condemn it
0: right yeah so you feel you've got to come out what within a certain time frame and and say certain things in order to make it clear what to you is probably blatantly obvious that of course you don't support those sorts of attacks yeah and, yeah. and
1: you know I have, yeah. I have to kind of be you know reactive i think uh, i know mend and a lot of other organizations i think they tend to look the work they do is a lot more uh, long term uh, rather than being very kind of reactive and you know as a result of these events it's very much about you know engaging with the muslim community making sure that personally you know we empower the muslim community in the political process uh, ensuring that people in muslim community use their vote at election times they know you know which elected representatives to contact
0: right. or
1: which uh, you know for whatever issues they're dealing with engage with the media as well um yeah. holding kind of round table discussions between the muslim community and the journalists which are two groups that do not often come together around the same table mm. but it does uh, it can help break down barriers and misconceptions yeah. on both sides Absolutely. The Muslim community people in Muslim community might think, you know, journalists are all, uh, you know, far right Islamophobes, which isn't, which is not true there, you know, there are a huge number of journalists that are, you know, they take, you know, they're reporting very seriously. And, you know, the, the words that they're putting out, um, you know, they, you can tell there's a lot of thought that goes behind it. And in terms of checking sources, etc. And then likewise, you know, you may be some journalists who have a deep distrust of the Muslim community, perhaps because don't know any Muslims personally. So I think such initiatives I think are very important in breaking down barriers and stereotypes.
0: Yeah, yeah, thank you. And Estefar, what what would you like to say about how it feels? I mean, let's say, let's just go back to probably maybe was it two and a half weeks ago, something like that. And there were, so we had attacks in Nice, which probably, Misreported, and then the attacks in Kabul and attacks in Vienna, and it's so hard, isn't it? And then, how do you, how then do you feel, kind of bracing yourself for the day, when when these attacks have been reported?
2: I think it's a process. I think oh, over wow. time you tend to find um, coping mechanisms and ways to approach it. Um, and every time you learn something different, I think when I was younger it was quite difficult, and I felt like I was called on to defend who I was and it was very much like I felt like fingers were being pointed at me to explain why things like this were going on and over time I just kind of learned to not pander to that and to just kind of not play the game and so that has been kind of liberating in a way to just not engage and I think that's kind of shown with the events in France Quite recently, is just I've just kind of switched off mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. kind of done what I would do on a normal day, mm-hmm. and I think that's the point, right? Is that um, a lot of non-Muslims will just see it, they'll put it down, and they'll just carry on with their day, um, mm-hmm. as does the rest of the world. And it's kind of the Muslim community that's really left to grapple with the consequences, um, and it's just me trying to be like the rest of the UK and that's hard but I think that's kind of been my approach in recent years.
1: In, in terms of I, I've i made a point of not I used to regularly watch the news on TV but I found that it was just really first of all it was really depressing but I think a lot of people you don't have to be Muslim to find that mm. um, so I'll try and maybe just I'll go on to a certain website a news website maybe once or almost twice a day just to get my fix of the news, just so I know what's happening. Um, but I'd, I'll try and make a point of not watching the news on TV because it is it, it can get quite depressing. Um, yeah. But on, on the point of attacks, actually, as well, it, it, something I forgot to mention is that what people don't realise is often there are times where Muslims themselves are victims of these attacks. Yeah. Um I, I was actually flying, I flew into Glasgow Airport, on the day of the Glasgow Airport attacks, and I actually left uh, the international arrivals um, uh, building. Just it must have been about an hour before um, two men, you know, drove a jeep in into that entrance, and I only found out when I got once I got back home that uh, watching the news, which I did in those days, um, mm-hmm. that what happened. And I was travelling with some friends, so I messaged them. all I said, "If you guys left the airport, because I was the first one to leave." Mm. And uh, they say, yeah, yeah, what's happened? And that's, you know, turn on the news and you'll see. So, you know, we could have been very easily caught up in that. Um, And I think a lot of people don't realise that, you know, Muslims are also victims of these these attacks that you hear about in the news.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, And of course, of course they are, because it's just the population, right? And, you know, what you're saying about the way the media presents it, it's, it's as though it's a splitting, isn't it? As though this is a this is an attack by a Muslim on non-Muslims or something, and of course it isn't. It's yeah. it's an it's an attack um, by a person or persons or, on a on a population or on a whoever happens to be there. <laughs>
1: exactly. You
0: know. And yeah, we've got yeah. There's a yeah. chance that
1: you know Muslims are caught up in that as well. And absolutely. W- yeah. Without, yeah. Whether whether it's uh, Muslims are you know, victims or not, I think you know these you know these attacks are wrong and it's but I think there's no. There isn't that kind of recognition within the reporting, certainly, of such incidents.
0: Yeah. And I, and I can hear in you both as well, and, and particularly, um, Estifer, and what you were saying as how how it felt when you were, uh, you know, a young girl. You somehow, it's as though you somehow felt, you know, the fingers pointed at you as though you were a representative of, um, I mean, in some ways, we're all representatives of our communities, aren't we? But, but in other ways, you know, we're just... Um, we're just human beings going about our day. <laughs> and we don't necessarily want to carry the I'm the rep badge. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: um I think that's something that affects minorities in general. Um and mm-hmm. that's why when we talk about Islamophobia, it is kind of rooted in racism. Mm-hmm. Um and it's just a product of the fact that we are still operating in a society that's quite racist. Um mm-hmm but my, I think minorities in general suffer from this, is that um, their difference becomes an intrinsic part of how people view them, um, and they're confined to that box. Um, and so it feels like individuality is kind of a privilege um, for people who aren't from minority communities, but when it comes to minorities, we get clumped together. Um, and it's kind of a one dimensional portrayal of who we are is that we're just um simply defined by black or muslim or asian or whatever that that characteristic is that differs from the default um so i think it's a general issue especially um in the uk
0: yeah really really well put so before we end could you let's just say a little bit about the black lives matter movement then and how um What kind of energy has that brought to you both in in whatever dimensions? Do you want to speak to that first, Etipha? Because you've written a piece about that for um, for our website, which has been really helpful.
2: I think this is kind of where intersectionality comes in. And I think the Black Muslim experience is very different from the Muslim experience. And and being Black and British is its own uh, whole other um, conversation. But I think it's been really invigorating... Um, to see the response this time that's come out of um, the Black Lives Matter movement and people engaging with it who have never engaged with it before. And it was born out of something really awful and really terrible. But the result was um, a real shift in um, ideas and a real shift in public opinion as well, which has been really nice. And people have engaged on it on all levels, on institutional levels, on a personal level just across ages and backgrounds. And I think that's been really hopeful um, for the future. But personally, I think it was, initially it was a very difficult time um, Mm -hmm. because you kind of, your identity is constantly on the media um, Mm -hmm. and kind of who you are and your experiences kind of being put up for debate between anybody and everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, And that makes it quite difficult to feel like you want to get involved because it's something that you're passionate about, but also to take a step back for your mental health. And I think a lot of our mental health took a toll um, in that time. But overall, I think it was um, kind of an incredible process over the couple of months or three months that it happened.
0: Thank you, Estipha. You've expressed that so well. And you know I remember with you know quite a lot of students just saying this is just so all-consuming and it's taking up all of our energy you know for for, for that it felt like there was a lot of positive and also a lot of very draining aspects to that for people.
2: Yeah yeah it was it it was a really draining time emotionally physically um, just difficult Mm -hmm. um, but also um, looking back on it, I think it's hard when you're in it. I think that's yeah. the key thing is that we all kind of took a hit while we were in it. Um, yeah. And the emotions were really high, and it's just a mixture of anger and genuine um, pain because you kind of, it reminds you of your own personal experiences, but also you empathize with the people in your community and the people you see across the pond um, that yeah. are going through worse things. Um, but looking back on it, I think with the high, the benefit of hindsight and a bit of time. Um, I think it was really important, and I think history will kind of show that this might have been a turning point, mm. um, which is nice.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Umar, is there anything you want to to come in on that with in terms of the intersection with the Black Lives Matter?
1: Yeah, I think, I've you know, I think, I uh, see if I put it more really eloquently. Um, I think the only point I would probably... I've kind of taken from it is you know I totally agree it, it's the the amount of kind of energy and attention that it's it is again is definitely positive positive. Um, and you know, things like um, you know, football players taking the knee before uh-huh. Premier League matches again it, it's I know some people have criticized it as a gimmick but what it is doing is, is still making sure that the awareness is there it's keeping it in the spotlight So, you know, we are still having the conversation um, institutionally. I think um, organisations like university are, you know, taking uh, decolonisation very seriously. That's come to the forefront and it's great to see the university actually acting on it, um, you know, even so far as changing the name of buildings. Um, And as as someone who kind of grew up and went to school in Edinburgh, um, I remember learning about the British Empire. And things that stick with me is that, you know, the sun, the sun never set Uh, on the British Empire, we covered a quarter, a quarter of the the world map was was red. Um, And you hear about you know, they discovered, you know, uh, tea and exported cricket and the railways to the subcontinent, but completely ignoring the fact that was certainly in the in the subcontinent, it was a very much a systematic Organized um, looting, pillaging of a nation, um, and it's it, there was a, an article I read recently about it that someone the, the research had been done. They calculated the the kind of monetary impact on the Indian subcontinent of the British Empire, and it, it the more equivalent it ran, ran into the trillions, trillions of pounds uh, in terms of what it, it's cost, and that's just the the economic impact. Aside from the the human costs, and you know the Other things that it's done so I think that's definitely something positive that's come out of the the Black Lives Matter
0: movement. Yeah it's really great to hear about that and um if I could just give a a, give a plug also for a, a new free course that's starting in January um, a, an online course via FutureLearn called Christian Muslim Relations. It's something that a colleague in the university has been involved in. Um, and also a, a wonderful um, new kind of exhibit on medieval Islamic art um, that's available at the university. And we'll put that information up um, on the website for this podcast as well, because I think people will, will really love to be able to hear about those. So I'm going to put you both on the spot, <laughs> if you don't mind, as a, as a, as a final um, comment from each of you. I wonder if you could kind of dig into some experience you've had that has been challenging for you as Muslims, but which you feel yourself turning into a strength and a hope for the future. Who'd like to go first on that?
1: Um, I think for me, there was experiences I, I can quite vividly remember in, in school, in which I got—I uh, was called—I got called Tartan Taliban by a teacher in front of the class. Uh, my approach to Islamophobia or, or racism is has always been kind of I'll go, you no, know, I'll try, I'll laugh, I'll try, laugh it off, and then maybe throw an insult back. And um, in school, I would do that, but when a teacher says it, it, was a bit, it's a bit more challenging because of the power dynamics.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, the teacher pupil relationship uh, can really, you're not really allowed to talk back. And I remember when when he said I was I was I think I was talking in class or something and. Eating. The teacher came out with that to shut and stop happening in the Tartan Taliban, and I had to bite my tongue to stop laughing because I actually I actually found it funny. It still makes me chuckle when I think about it, and everyone in the class was really kind of literally jaws of drop stunned. They could not believe the teacher said that, and afterwards they would say "No, you know, I can't believe he said that. You know, he could get the sack for that." And I didn't take it further at the thing because I thought I just kind of shrugged my shoulders, and I think it was a case of well you just you you just got to deal with it as a muslim that's maybe the kind of attitude i had but later on in school um towards you know the towards the end of my time at school and i think to it, it, i was i was probably about 50 or 60 at the time when it happened mm. but also i was asked by teachers in the rmps department kind of the religious education department, to come in and, and speak to their classes and um, either in the you know senior ones, kind of twelve year olds, um, or those doing their higher RMPs of so kind of you know, 16, 17 year olds, and it was just kind of like a an open Q and A session. Um, it give you know pupils a chance to speak to a real life Muslim in the school. Um, you know the younger pupils would ask about Ramadan and you know, do you to find out you know do you do you die of starvation at the end of the day, and I was living proof that no you don't. <laughs> and they were just you know, they always have a bowl of porridge in the morning. They're like, you know, what do you eat, and those kind of things. And then the older pupils who are doing the hires. There were a lot, a lot more kind of deeper questions around about maybe the portrayal of Muslims in the media. Um, you know, the, the role of you know jihad and you know what, what does jihad mean in Islam, and a lot more deeper conversations. But it was great because it, it was it was an interaction, which. Um, where I feel was, you know, was breaking barriers and dispelling myths and stereotypes.
0: That's fantastic, Emma. So that, that having that experience yourself as a school pupil, it kind of took you back into schools to do this really positive and, and myth-busting work. I love that, that the littler ones were asking if you, if you die of starvation in Ramadan. <laughs> but it's so important yeah. for them to be able to ask, isn't it? You know. Yeah, because
1: it, when they learn about it, that's probably what they're yeah. thinking. Like, how on earth does someone go that long without food and drink? And I suppose there's, living example that you know what it's it's actually okay you know you we, we live yeah. to tell the tale
0: yeah and I think people get a lot of strength actually through fasting don't they I think it's it's misunderstood even on I've seen it even at universities we've at the university we've we've sometimes had to come in and and, and demystify what people are able to do in Ramadan that you know because if you're not if you're from a culture that doesn't fast at all you do imagine that people might be fainting all day long in Ramadan which of course isn't the case so I really like it that they that they asked you that question. Um, so Estefan, is there anything you'd like to say in terms of a challenge that have that you've turned into a positive? I can't think of a specific example but
2: I would say that in general just my university experience has been full of difficulties but also um, it's been a generally good experience but it, it was full of a lot of people who have never really spoken to a Muslim in their life before let alone a black Muslim. And so it came with a lot of questions, um, a lot of challenges of who I was, sometimes a lot of quite offensive behavior. But I think in general, overall, I've come out of it appreciative of where I am. But I think in some ways, a lot of people say that existence is resistance. And so being in a space where People like you aren't the majority, or don't operate, um, or haven't been before. Really does hopefully pave the way for other people to come and have it easier. And I always think I think it's worth it to have had the university experience that I've had. If the people, if my friends and the people in my cohort, and the people that I've worked with, the next time they see a Muslim person, will think of me and have encountered being around Muslims before and will know a lot more than they did before they met me. And I really do think that will make it easier for everybody else. And I think that's probably the spirit that our parents have carried through living in this country. Um Mm -hmm. is really paved the way for us to do better and be better educated. But yeah, they've made it easier.
0: Yeah. Oh well thank you, Esther. So that's in a in a way that's your choosing an ambassadorial role sometimes, you know. So and it's a turnaround, isn't it, from that that younger girl who didn't always have no want to have to carry that on her back to you know sometimes we can just make the conscious choice of well you know i hope that by people having met me they don't find islam or muslims so mysterious and and that life will get better as a result Yeah. yeah yeah thank you so much to you both um really appreciate your time and your honesty And openness and authenticity. Really grateful to you. Thank you.
2: Thank you.